they, they do two things at once. One, they fall in love with their idea, and two, they're so convinced it's awesome they don't want to tell anyone else about it. Right? They're, they're going to steal my, my fabulous idea. Right. Right. I, my advice is, is tell everyone about the idea. Powder Cake fans, this is episode 107 of Powder Cake Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we'll be talking with Jeff Reedy, the founder and CEO of Scale Computing, which is an Indianapolis-based company that is the industry-leading application platform for edge computing. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. Edge computing environments that covers anything from global retail to manufacturing to financial services and government. Uh, really cool company based right here in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are in scale headquarters right now. And Jeff is a serial entrepreneur with years of experience as a leader and executive who has started and led numerous companies. I hope we get to talk about some of the, your past companies as well today. Uh, raising millions in venture capital for your, his own ventures as well as for others and has helped guide amazing companies from just an idea all the way through exit. Jeff. Good to have you here, man. Absolutely. Thanks Happy for agreeing to, to do this. Yeah, no problem. We were grabbing beers a couple uh, months ago at this point, probably. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think I, I get, got you enough beer to the point where you said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't, <laughs> take, it doesn't take much. I, I love talking about entrepreneurship and I love beer. So hey, you got there me you go. both. So. We, sh we should have scheduled this for later in the <laughs> afternoon. We could have made it, made it part two. Um, well, I, w I wanted to... I definitely want to talk about what's going on at scale because I know it's super exciting times uh, with everything that's going on, winning awards left and right, mostly for stuff that I don't understand at all because it yeah, all has to do with hard. edge computing. <laughs> um, but I, I want to take it back first because you've got a really interesting backstory. Uh, and I'm just curious, what were you like as a child? What were you into? Were you always working on computers and technology? Uh, yeah, more or less, I would say. Do you have like an I, earliest uh, memory? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I got my uh, I got my first computer. Uh, it was an Atari 800 um, that I got uh, for Christmas when I was in third grade. So um, uh, that for me would have been uh, December of 1982. Um, That's awesome. When I when I got that computer. See, when I think of Atari, I think of like joystick. Yeah, uh, yeah, buy yeah. it at I mean, a garage they, yeah, sale, they, they, kind of. So they, they obviously they had that, right? And then they had uh, they had two computers. One called the the Atari Four Hundred, the Atari Eight Hundred. They were effectively the same, um, but the uh, the Atari Four Hundred uh, didn't have a real keyboard. It was kind of a flat mat with um, little bubbled. I don't know. Imagine like a vinyl thing with like slight little bubbles that you you couldn't really type very well on okay. it. And then the eight hundred had a real keyboard. That was the big difference. Um, <laughs> nice. But you could put Twice as awesome. you could put cartridges in it just like you would if you had an old Atari twenty six hundred. Oh really? Uh, yeah. But it was a full uh, with forty eight k of RAM. Um, <laughs> you know, full full system. I mean, sometimes if you try to boot, uh, you know, something off of the tape drive or the floppy drive, um, it would pop up with this error that said please remove the cartridge if you had one in there uh, because this this program requires all 48k of RAM right so <laughs> and the cartridge took 8 or something anyway but um, people today don't appreciate yeah yeah no and, and i uh, and, and so i you know I, I fell in love with the thing kind of right out the gate um, and uh, you know my dad um, so my dad was in what we would now call IT uh, it was called information systems back yep. then 
Um, and so, uh, you know, it was his doing, um, I'm sure, that it led to, to that. And I remember he had... But it wasn't forced upon you, right? No, no, this no, was... it was not forced. No, I wanted one. In yeah. fact, I remember I had asked, I think, for a, a, a computer. Um, I don't remember. I know I did not ask for an Atari, but somehow Dad had the the, uh, the line on people we could pirate software from and stuff with the Atari. So that's <laughs> what uh, that's what he did. But I remember he, uh, among the stuff, um, was a photocopied um, book on how to program in BASIC um, that he had done. You know, I guess they had these things at his, his office, right? So it's on this, uh, you know, these weird spiral-bound things that he'd run through the company printer, I'm, I'm sure not printer, Xerox machine, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure. And so you know, I remember, like, starting to teach myself how to code out of that, that photocopied book, right? That's and then, crazy. You know, and back then... You know, there were magazines at the library. I'd check out magazines at the library and, like, enter in, you know, write programs from that. And, you know, the other thing you could do then, which you really can't do now, is a lot of times you'd be running a piece of software, and if you hit the, you know, effect, you know, control break, like, you would be in the code. Like, you could then, like, print the code or (laughs) sometimes even edit the code, right? I I would sometimes go in there and, like, edit the game so it would say, like, written by Jeff Reedy, right, even though it was all, (laughs) you know, BS. But, uh yeah, so I so I did that, um, and then what what was it about that that really caught your attention? I mean, were you? I, you it know, doesn't seem like something that would come naturally to me, being not sort of of that engineering mindset. Yeah, yeah. No, I well, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I you know I love the games, right? I mean, so I, I okay, always so I, I'm to, a big video. I'm a, I'm still a big video gamer. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, you know, I always joke when I, I get on now and I'm playing you know Call of Duty or whatever, right? And with you know, typically people much younger than me, right? <laughs> and sometimes I'll get the question like, you know, oh, how you sound older? How old are you? And my, my standard answer is, I'm as old as you can be to have always been playing video games, right? So like there was <laughs> never great. really, yeah. you know, a time when I didn't have some kind of video game around. I mean, my parents had a pong, right? yeah. So um, your voice has some presence. So if you're playing online, yeah, it's and playing, playing with yeah, kids, it's yeah, very noticeable, right? And so. Um, so like the games, and you know a lot of the like compute magazine and stuff. When you were the, the coding was to like make game. I mean they had little games that you could like write, and yeah. you know and, and the at that point right. I mean the difference between the game that you would write just out of the back of a magazine and what you actually were buying, they, they weren't that different, right? I mean you were basically able to create um, you know quote-unquote commercial quality games right, right? and for, um, for what commercial was putting out at the time right right you exactly. didn't have teams of hundreds of people working and, on one game for yeah years. and then you know i think the engineering mindset i suppose right i mean i was always i was always trying to figure out a way to use the computer for something else right so i like i remember you know i don't know there, there was some you know, I I don't, I don't think they make classes do this anymore but the class got in trouble like in school and we all like homework assignment was we all had to write every number from like one to a thousand one to ten i don't know some it was something you had to write all these numbers out like as Mm -hmm. punishment for whatever the class misbehaved and so i'm like oh i'll use the the computer so i just like you know wrote a little program to print i mean it's the simplest program ever right but to print out you know and i just printed out like one through a million and like brought them in and (laughs) and out of the teacher the teacher's like ah, it's fine right you know that that worked right and um you know i was you know, such a geek, right? I was the first kid to ever turn in like a, you know, fifth grade paper that was on a dot matrix printer because I had like written it on the computer, right? right. And and, uh, and again, my handwriting was horrible, so I was solving a problem. Right? <laughs> um, 
And so, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, about the time I was, so, you know, around that same time uh, is when this world used to be called BBSs, right? So it's a, pre a precursor to the internet where you could like use a modem and have your computer connect to somebody else's computer and, you know, you could sort of do email, it wasn't, I don't even know if we call, I think we just called it messages then, but, um, you know, if you had a computer, I could remotely log into your computer and leave you a message and then you would get it, right? Mm -hmm. One to one almost. Um, and if, but if I knew, you know, my other friend was gonna also get on your computer, I could leave a message for him so long as he eventually got on your system and, and that's where it was. It was like a bullet, well, that's why it was called a bulletin board. Bulletin board, board right? yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I got into those, um, my dad and I, much later, when I was probably sixth, seventh, eighth grade, like we actually ran a bulletin board and oh, yeah, I was cool. into all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, but again, kind of even rolling back a bit, I mean, younger than that, I was always into it. I, you know, my dad, so again, like an IT guy would have to go in on the weekends because stuff would be broken because that's what happens in IT. And, you know, this was, this was mainframes with punch cards and stuff. But I would sit there as, you know, when I was six or seven and, and just play with the punch card machine, right? Trying to make shapes out of the punch cards. It's never worked, but I was like, <laughs> oh, I wonder if I can make a diamond on the punch card or whatever. And, uh, you know, so I just, I've always been around him, right? And, uh, you know, and I just, I just took to him the whole time, right? Did, did you ever run into some barriers or obstacles or big challenges where you were really feeling frustrated with it? Or did it, was it always just natural, easy, kind of smooth sailing? Uh, I mean, I think the... You know, for at least the level of, of program I was doing, right, I didn't find it terribly difficult. What what was difficult, or fr what was frustrating, I shouldn't say difficult, what was frustrating was at the time, right, there was no, there, there was no way for me to get any kind of actual education in this stuff, right? Um, and I remember when my, when my grade school first got Apple II computers, um, and, you know, that would have been when I was saying fifth grade I don't remember exactly but I'd already I'd already knew how to I already knew basic programming right and so you know so they had a class so come learn to program and I go in the class and this was all stuff like that was way behind me right mm -hmm. and so you know I ended up helping the class and then when I was in like sixth grade they actually had me co-teach the eighth grade programming class right it was just like there was <laughs> which was great I mean I got a lot of experience from doing that but I wasn't there was nobody to teach me right yeah. the, the the programming stuff right? you had a hunger so, for more but there was no way yeah, to access and I, that. You know, the internet and was not. No, exactly. A thing no internet. Yet. Right? Yeah. You know, and um, you could get a little bit off the BBSs, and you know, most of it was the library, right? Yeah. I also like I like hanging out at the library. Where'd right? you grow up? Uh, Griffith, Indiana. Okay. Um, so it's up just outside of Gary. So, nice. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, you know, I'd read books on the stuff and, and whatever. And, you know, I probably like many engineers um, and geeks. Like I wasn't about to sit down and just like read the programming book. Like I'm gonna like jump to the end and like see if I can like start sucking code out of it and whatever. I do that kind of thing. And then, you know, my dad and I later, like when I was in fourth grade or so, we started building computers for, you know, neighbors. Um, you know, if I were in college, I'd have been like the Mike, perfect Michael Dell age, right? Oh, I was yeah. building like PCs in college, but I was younger, right? So, um, so when did the monetary piece come into it? Well, you know, I think, so that's a slightly different story, but when I was 11 or so, um, 10 or 11, I, uh, you know, the fortunate, I don't know, life is, is funny, right? When you look back and you think the little things that actually end up making a big difference. I had a neighbor, um, our immediate next door neighbor asked if I was interested in mowing his lawn, right? Um, cause I mowed our lawn and, uh, I said, sure. Um, 
And I think he asked because it, it actually turned out, again, again, random circumstances, right? But our, our front yard and his front yard were actually adjacent. The grass, it was like there was just grass between two driveways, right? Yep. And so... You know, my mom would say, well, Mr. Mirren is older, like, at least just cut his front yard because it's going to take me an extra three minutes, right? <laughs> and, um, and these were small, like, suburban, you know, lots, right? So, right. So, yeah, so I would just mow driveway to driveway, and then eventually he's like, hey, you want to mow the backyard too, and I'll pay you, and I did that. And I thought, well, that was fun, right? Like, that wasn't <laughs> really that hard, and he paid me. And then, um, you know, pretty soon two other neighbors across the street were interested in having me mow their lawn, and so I had a little thing going. And then, um, you know, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I, I can really start making some money. So I remember I like, you know, I made um, on my computer, of course, like <laughs> I made little flyers, right, that said, hey, this is what I would charge to mow your lawn. And I would, you know, I printed out a little form and I would check the box, you know, with a, a manually, right, and drop it in their mailbox. Yep. And, uh, it's like and a behold. quote, basically. Yeah, yeah, like a quote, right? Yeah. I mean, this was just, this is marketing, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, lo and behold, I'd get some people would call, right? Yeah. And, um they would do it. And they were always the people who would like let their lawn go for like two months. Right? So it was <laughs> right. like way high and right. big pain. But still, I would get it. And then, you know, th- this continued. And I kept doing it, doing it, doing it. And then by the time I was in high school, you know, I had 50-some lawns and three apartment complexes. And I, I had my friends, um, you know, they were making at the time $3.15, I think, was minimum wage at the time. So they were getting that at McDonald's. And I'm like, well, I'll pay you 5 bucks. To mow the lawn started building your team um, yeah build a team and then i wasn't mowing lawns anymore like they would mow the lawn and i would while they were cutting the lawn i would just go to do- knock door to door yeah because if i could get another lawn that was right there right it's you know super easy right so did you like um, that sales part of it i did i think i mean i, I um you know it's always intimidating it's still intimidating right cold calling is still intimidating but the um the exciting part of like getting the deal right somebody says yes and then it's like it all works and you know i love it i still love i I talk to customers all the time at scale and all i mean i love talking to customers right and um you know making them happy and every you know it's a win-win for everybody it should be right in the end and so you know so those those two things were happening right so i was um you know I, i i very early caught kind of the entrepreneurial bug Right. And I had the, the tech bug. Right. And then perfect combination. Uh, yeah. And, and then just, um, you know, the timing of all that is as I when I went to college um, and actually started a couple of companies with buddies while I was in college just to, yeah. for beer money, effectively. In Terre Haute, right? Indiana. Right? Yeah. In, in beautiful Terre Haute, <laughs> Indiana. That's right. Um, so but Rose Holman's a pretty, pretty incredible engineering school. Were you able to actually find some uh, education at that point that yes. that was yeah push oh you. yeah I was uh, <laughs> I found myself way in over my head actually so it was funny I you know I um all through high school and everything I was you know we had by that point there were starting to be like you know academic competitions and there were programming and it was still very it was still very easy to me and you know so I was always on our team and you know we won all the time like almost a few that still burned me that we didn't win but I, <laughs> almost every competition i was in we won um and so when i went to to college at rose um i thought well, this would be easy yeah it, it's just gonna be more of the same right right and uh, uh no not so much <laughs> i uh it's funny I, I very quickly learned like yeah, you know, I went from being like the best programmer in the room to like I'm not even on the same plane now. You know, maybe some of these guys had the yeah, quote unquote unfair advantage because they were learning things along the way, or I, I wasn't necessarily. Um, but be that as it may, I mean they were great, and I was playing a lot of catch up. Um, How did you handle that? 
poorly at first. Um, it, it was I was just not. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's not uncommon, right? If freshmen in, in sure, at a, especially at a you know, it's a very high end. Um, tough academic school right it's known to be like tough on academics and it's all technical and so there's a lot of kids there that sort of had it easy in high school right and then find themselves like oh this is way harder right and um but then what you find out it's a bell curve right so of the group that ends up there there are still people there that seem to find it all incredibly easy like oh differential equations too no problem i'm like (laughs) you gotta be kidding me right like i don't even know what we're talking about and so um, you know, so I got that, but what ended up happening, right? It's funny, like over the, the course of, of my time at, at Rose, I found myself, um, being in the best position if, uh, you know, a, a group would get formed for a project and, you know, volunteering to be the leader of the group, right? Because then I, cause I had, I, I could do things again, I going back to my knocking on doors when I was 11, I was willing to talk to the professor and keep the, you know, we, I remember my senior project group, like, I didn't write any code. Zero code in that project was for me. My job was to keep the professor from bugging the other, um, bugging the programmers, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, and, you know, fast forward today, now I got to keep the board of directors away from the engineers, <laughs> right? It's the same kind of thing. But, um, you know, doing that, and, uh, you know, that was a real project for a customer, effectively. And yeah. I, so I'd talk to the customer, I'd talk to the professor, I'd try and make the whole, you know, organize the meeting and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I remember I had a professor, and he, he retired a year or two ago, uh, Dr. Laxer. Um, and he, when I, I was a freshman, the, the first, uh, what they called CS231, the first uh, computer science course for computer science majors. Um, and you have a group project, and he assigned the group leaders, right? And I, you know, I assumed, uh, and maybe it's true, I assumed it was random, right? And he picked me to be a group leader, and, but... You know, looking back at, you know, when I, by the time I was a senior and looking back and seeing who he picked as group leaders and kind of how people work, like, obviously he's put his, at that point, I don't know, 30 years of experience. Like, he was picking intentionally. Yeah. And, um, and it was great. I mean, I had some guys that were, you know, even on that team, I still remember their names. And, and they, you know, they were awesome programmers, again, better than me. I was still writing some code when I was a freshman and sophomore. But the, um, you know, it, just getting in that position and, um, you know, I think great teachers – you know know how to extract or how to how to put you in a position to succeed and that certainly that was what was happening there right do you still believe in um playing to your strengths as opposed to working on your weaknesses a hundred percent yeah i i think that uh you know i mean everybody can i mean mean, to some extent you if you have a weakness right it needs to be shored up enough right so that it's not a burden um right i mean if you're not i mean if you're not a public speaker don't you don't need to force yourself to become like a great public speaker but you can't be thrown into a situation where you're going to be in like a group meeting somebody asks you to present something and you can't do it right like you need to at least be you know good enough there and the same same sort of thing like i i i find myself like even though i learned along the way like okay i was not going to be the best coder right of everybody that was here but i i know how it works right i've got it and now I can use that and explore the, these other areas. And, and to me, that, that's how we do it. We, that's how I, I try to even have my team, like, focus on what their strengths are. And um, we've even done some of the – sometimes I think these things are a little bit cheeseball. But sure. the, the little, like, strength finders and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, I, they, they do seem to be reasonably accurate, right? I don't yeah. know to what extent they're accurate. Like, a horoscope is accurate. Like, it just fits anybody. But 
Um, but, you know, when I've seen it pick out, like, different things here and people that, that I know or members of my executive team and stuff, I mean, they, they are pretty accurate. And it's just like, okay, well, now – and the, the benefit of doing something like that in, you know, kind of the group publicly is that then everybody knows, right? Yep. Okay, this is the guy who's really good at um, – you know, being the the icebreaker with a new prospect, right? Which is a different a different skill set than being the guy that closes a deal, being the guy that makes the product, right? And so, you know, if everybody gets on the same page, especially early on in a startup, you got you know four or five people, right? It's good to know like how those those roles all kind of break out. Um, so yeah, I just I, I you know, and and along the way, I always right, I never had a a quote-unquote real job, right? Um, I mean, I've had a few jobs along the way. I mean, I worked at Dairy Queen for like three months. Right? That, didn't, that didn't last. But the because um, I couldn't make the money, I could make mowing lawns. I thought maybe in the wintertime I could do Dairy Queen, and I just couldn't stand it. But the um, At a certain point, you just got to buy your own blizzard. Exactly. I just forget it, right? And um, I'm like, maybe I could just shovel snow, which I then tried to do, and I'm like, that's way more work than mowing lawns, so I scrapped that whole project. But the... Uh, you know, I mean, but I, you know, I, I started, uh, you know, my first quote unquote real company meaning that this had to like sustain me in life um you know while i was a senior at at rose holman such that when i graduated that's what we did yeah and and i've never stopped right so um you know i've always you know i've I've always i guess you know i don't know if that's hardwired or or you know circumstantial because of all these other things i just talked about but um you know that's my approach i don't know what else i would do um you know and it's uh, it, it, I, I tell people sometimes, like when you start enough companies, um, at some point it becomes almost a curse. Meaning that, like, I see problems and I'm like, well, I could, I could figure out a way to fix that. Right? Yeah. And uh, um, are there it, other unique ways that you've uh, come up with startup ideas? Yeah. No. I mean, I. So you know, one of my, one of my go-to things is to make sure that you that I've got right lots of ideas uh hundreds of ideas um because it's easy to become infatuated with one idea it's almost the trap i you know almost every first time entrepreneur at least um i see fall into i i'd call it a trap i mean there's clearly people that had one idea and it was wildly successful and that's awesome right i you know certainly the exception not the norm yeah i mean so you know when i the funny thing like going back to rose holman when i met the guys that became my co-founders um who you know at at least some of them are still with me today at scale and other and most of them were involved in all of my my founding stage of the companies um like we had decided we were going to start a company and we had no idea what it was going to be like there was (laughs) there was no idea at all um it was just like hey what I want to do is start a company. I mean, Scott, I name is Scott Loftmiller, who um, he's my uh, chief product officer here at Scale, lives in San Francisco. Um, the way I met him is he came to my dorm room and he had a drawing um, of a T-shirt of Barney the dinosaur with a bullet in, its he- in his head. And it said, Barney must die. And uh, he said, hey, I'm selling T-shirts. Do you want to buy a Barney must die T-shirt? <laughs> And uh, it's an interesting I'm like, sales pitch. yeah, and I'm like, well, no, but um, and uh, but I, I know it. I'm like, do you have the T-shirts? He's like, no. He's like, I was really just trying to figure out, like, if enough people wanted them, then I would go order T-shirts and have them made. And I'm like, I like this guy, right? <laughs> and um, and so he and I started started talking and became obviously great friends. And uh, and he was one of the guys that was in this, like, well, I don't know what I want to do when I graduate. We're going to start a company, right? And um, 
And so when you approach it that way, it's very natural to say, well, we got to come up with a lot of ideas. Right. right. So we can vet these things and see what sticks. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what we did. And it, it helps you avoid, like, just, it's so easy to fall in love with your idea. Um, and, uh, you know, big, one of the biggest uh, mistakes I, I think people make is that they, they, they do two things at once. One, they fall in love with their idea. And two, they're so convinced it's awesome they don't want to tell anyone else about it. Right, they're going to steal my my fabulous idea. Right, right. I my advice is is tell everyone about the idea, right? even if they don't want to hear it. <laughs> tell everyone, right? I, I mean, I suppose if you've you know somehow come up with a new protein to kill cancer or something, I, that's a little bit different, right? But even then, like if you tell me about it, what am I going to do with that information? I don't know how to make that protein, right? I mean, I don't even know what you're talking. I'm I, I don't even know what I'm talking about right now, right? So it, it's. Um, <laughs> You know, what are you going to do with that? And you never know who is going to be able to help you or guide you or give you some feedback that that changes, you know, changes things a bit. Um, Prevents you from following a terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even the, the founding of, of scale. Right. And, and so. Um, yeah. How'd that idea come about? Well, you know, so it was it started. um It started in a couple of, of convoluted ways. Um so scale, uh, to slightly contradict myself, didn't actually start as purely one of the ideas in, in kind of my idea notebook. Um, we had actually been pursuing a different idea um, that was around. We had to build, we built a, we were going to do stock trading using uh, artificial intelligence kind of before AI was a thing anyone talked about. And um, we had to build a, a, effectively a supercomputer to do the AI processing and we didn't have, you know, it was our money. So this was not going, uh, you know, this was not like IBM's just going to build us a supercomputer. We were going to build this thing out of consumer parts, right? Yep. And uh, uh, what year was this? Oh, this would have been like 2004, uh, 2004, 2005, 2006. Kind of. We worked on this for a while. Yeah. Right? And it, it started, it started as like a science project. Like, oh, so the company I had before kind of this thing was in the anti-spam space and we used AI to do anti-spam and so the idea was very like oh well we'll just use the same AI techniques and do stock market forecasting and it'll be a magic black box that makes us rich and that'll be great right and so I like this pitch um, yeah <laughs> and it was just I don't know the, the science project part of it was a lot of fun mm -hmm. right trying to figure it out and okay new algorithms new change this change that the computer kept getting more and more complicated um, the, the physical hardware and so we kept adding on to it and adding on to it. And I got, there's all kinds of stories I could tell you about that, but the, you know, to, to, we, we can come back to it if you want, but to, to, to jump to towards the end, um, we finally did, it was working. Um, and we then said, okay, we're going to turn this into a real business. And so that meant a hedge fund, right? So you're going to yep. get other people's money, invest it and skim off the top, right? It's effectively what a hedge fund does. Right. Um, and so we're like, okay, it works. I got this. And so we went around and, and raised the money or we're pursuing. So I didn't know anything about hedge funds, right? A lot of smaller hedge funds are actually get funded by bigger hedge funds, kind of like VCs invest in startups. It's sort of the same sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, we finally got a, a fund that was willing to put in a, a lot of money, not not as an, inve an equity investment, but actually money we were going to then use to buy and sell stocks. Like principal amount. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. And... Um, you know, then, so me and the guys, we were uh, just sitting around, a, literally, uh, I mean, we're, you and I are sitting around this wooden table. It was a table very similar to this in a garage. Um, and said, okay, do, you know, 
this is gonna get this is gonna get real if we take other people's money, right? Yeah. Our money in there is one thing, right? And um, uh, so we we took a vote. There were six of us. We took a vote. One of the guys was literally wearing a hat, a baseball hat, and so I just had people like write on a piece of paper, yes or no. Do we want to take the money and proceed? Throw it in a hat, pass it around. We had six no's. Wow. And um, and the reason was um, the business the business wasn't fun, right? Yeah. The science project was fun. Trying to like beat the stock market and beat the other traders was fun. The idea of like somebody's gonna give us money, we invest it. Either we're the hero or the goat. Uh, you know, it, depending on if you made or lost money. Like it, it wasn't. I did, you know, learned a little bit about myself in that. Like, yeah. it, there was no, there was no product, there was no service that made anything better. It was just purely financial, and it's okay, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just for me personally, it was not very exciting. Yeah, and um, and for the other guys too, and so you got to follow what excites you. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And it was just at, at the, the science project part was super cool, right? I mean, <laughs> it was like, yeah, we can make this work. And then when we had it kind of working, it's like, eh, mm, never mind, right? So. So we scrapped it, and we decided we're not going to do it. Um, and did, so, did you at least like sell it off to someone no. or license it? No, it was stupid, <laughs> right? I mean, because it, it was working, right? And it's but this was this was before the two thousand eight stock market crash. Yeah, and I, yeah, they yeah. All, my joke is always like we would have gone to jail either way because it was a highly leveraged model. So either it would have predicted the stock market crash, and we would have made a ton of money, and no one would have believed us, or it would have complete. It would have lost all the money, like in one day, like yeah. that. That kind of you know, ten percent move or whatever the stock market was that day, with us being all leveraged in. Like we would have lost all the money if we bet wrong, and um, that would have been bad too. So, either yeah. way, uh, we didn't do it. But um, as we were thinking about it, uh, we said, okay, well, what are we going to do next? And so we had our idea notebook, right? Then bust that thing out again, looking through that. And uh, one of the guys was like, well, you know, this, this computer system that we built for us is pretty cool, right? You know, not the AI part, right? But the uh, parts of the AI, but not, not the stock trading part, but just the way that the system was built. Um, it was built because the, the way that the, the thing happened is that we started with, okay, there's one computer running an algorithm, and it was too slow. And so then we had to have other computers kind of network together running the algorithm. And it kept going and going until we had hundreds of of processors like running this thing, um, which now isn't that big a deal at the time though, it was a major undertaking. And um, we're like, well surely other people would benefit from that type of scalable, hence the name of the company, scalable yeah. architecture, right? And so we said, well, let's let's find out, right? So again, it wasn't even a, um, it wasn't really like that, we're just running with that idea, it just went into the notebook, right? Okay, we could do something And this something is where you're collecting all your startup ideas. Correct, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I had all kinds of ideas in there. I mean, I wrote a business, I wrote, a, you, know, at, you know, sometimes I, I write these kind of mini business plans as, as, I don't know, hobbies or when I'm on an airplane or something about some idea and I just file it away, right? And so, you know, I had written a business plan for a brewery um, we wrote a business plan for a chain of Irish pubs, right? I mean, these are the, I mean, whatever. These are the kind of things we're working on. And these were, these were legitimately competing, like, we, we really liked the idea of the brewery. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so it was like, we were pursuing it, like, along with what became scale computing. But the, in the, in the notebook, um, scale computing was written down as, uh, you know, whatever, idea number 64 or whatever it was compete with VMware. So VMware is a, is a, is a company that makes software um, that, you know, basically runs data centers. It's a software that runs the other software, right? Yeah. So 
Um, not something consumers would typically be familiar with. If you're an IT guy, 100% you know what VMware is, right? It so, kind of makes cloud computing possible, right? Yeah, effectively, right? It's the idea that uh, I've got one server, but I need to run like six servers worth of stuff. And yep. so it sort of creates a, a virtual server on top of the physical server. And that's, uh, that, that's, the, I, that's their original idea. Now it's evolved well beyond that, but that's what it was. And so they had, so at the time that we were screwing around with this, um, uh, this supercomputer thing, VMware had just gone public, and um, they went public, and you know I, I watch these things again because a lot of times I'll see companies go public. I'm like, that's a good idea, and I just put it in the notebook, right? And that was basically <laughs> what happened here, like compete with VMware, and um, the stock was you know doing extremely well, and they had something like 98% market share in this virtualization space that is it's called. Yeah. And I, they need a competitor, right? 98% market share. And so it went in the notebook. And then we were like, okay, we've kind of put two and two together. Like this architecture we built is pretty cool. VMware needs a competitor. What if we merge those two things together um, and, and come up with the, this cool solution? And so, so that was a, a neat idea. And so then our next step is, oh, well, let's, let's find out if anyone cares, right? I mean, before we, no, let's not write any code, yeah. right? Let's just see if anyone cares. And so I uh, very cleverly went to the VMware website and that they have a list of some of their case studies, right? So here are their favorite customers. Yep. I made a list of their 15 or 20 favorite customers and then we started calling them. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure and they I, love that. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure VMware wasn't happy about it, but that's what we did. And, and so I'd get folks on the phone and- um, Cold calling. Yeah, it was cold. Back to cold calling. Yeah, yeah back to cold calling. You and print, I would print a hand handwritten quote and yeah, exactly. Put it in right the mailbox. In the, right, <laughs> throw in the mailbox. Right, I, I'd throw that thing out there. And the, um, you know what, what my pitch was uh, was very simple. Like, hey, you know, I'm thinking of starting a company. I don't have anything to sell yet. I'm thinking of starting a company. If I could do everything that VMware does for thirty percent less, would you buy it? Right. Now, that that was the pitch. Yeah. Um, and much to my surprise and a bit to my dismay, I was getting a lot of, no, not really. I'm like, okay. And so you're adjusting, right? And so I'm like, okay, I make a couple calls and I'm getting that feedback universally, right? Yeah. I got another one, one of my other guys who kind of runs, uh, you know, the other guy more on the sales side like me, less technical than me, but more salesy than me. We're, we're the two that are making these calls, right? And he's yeah. getting the same feedback. And um, let's ask him 50%. 60%, 70% less. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm like 70% less than VMware. And I'm like, eh, no, not really. And I'm like, what the hell, right? And, and so I'm like, <laughs> yeah, what if it, so finally I get some guy on the phone and he was kind of engaged and, and, you know, if you've ever made these kind of calls, which I encourage anyone who's starting a company, like talk to customers, like <clears throat> step one should be talk to those who would be customers before you do anything else, yep. right? And, um, you know, this guy was engaging, right? And so instead of being a two-minute call, it was, we were 10 minutes into the call. And, and finally I said, well, what if it were free, right? What if I did everything VMware could do and it was free? And he still was like, no, I don't know. If I, maybe, but I don't know. And, and so now, now my brain is, like, going. Like, I don't know. Like, what is the deal here? And so I asked the guy, and it was a, it was a law firm um, out of California called Fenwick and West. I oh, think sure. they're still around. Yeah, they are. And um, so he was the, the, the head of IT for Fenwick and West. And I said, and he's like, no. And, and he's like, well, he's like, and, and I said, well, I, I, the question I had for him was like, well, how much do you spend on VMware? He's like, oh, it's a great question because we just built a new data center. Um, and it was, and I, I know exactly, it was about $500,000 we spent on VMware. 
And, you know, I'm a little mystified, right? Because I'm like, if I could save you half a million dollars and it costs you nothing, like, that's not interesting. And he says, well, in reality, uh, that data center, it was, that was a $10 million project. And, but VMware is only half a million dollars of that project. And then the light bulb went off. And I'm like, oh, like, I th- <laughs> right? I, what I heard myself asking was $500,000 versus zero, would you take zero? What he heard was $10 million versus $9.5 million if I go with a startup I've never heard of. The answer is no. Right. And I'm like, aha. And so <laughs> I get it. Right. And, and so VMware is not it's not an independent purchase in that way. It's part of a bigger project. And so I said, oh, when that data center, what what's the most expensive component? And at the time, and this is probably still true, actually, but at the time he said, well, by far the, the data storage. Yep. And uh, he said that was seven million of the 10 million. And I said, what if I could save you 30% on the data storage? He said, I'd write you a check right now. And so I'm like, okay, right now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> now we're talking. And so, uh, so we went back and, and, and changed our plans. Um, and data storage was always part, because again, we had this kind of compete with VMware component as well as this hardware aspect in terms of the, the architecture. And so um, we just re, re, reprioritized and said, okay, we're getting, well, well first thing you just start asking other people, okay, let's stop asking about VMware and just start asking people we can save them 30% on storage. And now, and we're getting yes, 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 coming back. Like, okay, well, now we've got something, right? So then Asking you the right start questions. putting together, right, the, the right thing. And this is, the, you know, to, to take a, a pause on that, that, this is exactly what I'm talking about. If you get infatuated with your idea, and I go and spend years and maybe tens of millions of dollars of venture capital building the VMware competitor and no one cares, like, that's a total waste of everybody's time and money, right? Yeah. And, and so, and this was, you know, this was cut off in an afternoon of making phone calls. Is right? that still in the DNA of the culture at scale today? Well, I, I, I hope so. It certainly isn't <laughs> mine. I still, I still make a lot of customer prospect calls and ask them questions. And, you know, it's a, I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a big company, it's a product management question. But, but you, need to, you need to embrace it culturally more than that because if you just, you know, Product management, almost by definition, asks questions that, that tend to be more incremental in nature. Like, we have this product. Like, do you want these features, those features, et cetera, versus something way off the wall, right? right. When you're a brand-new startup, it's easy to think way off the wall because you have no. If you do it before you've written any code, you have nothing. So what's the difference? Yeah. Right? Um, and so in the end, um, we did launch originally with this kind of data. So scale computing, um, we were incorporated with this vision of competing with VMware and, you know, VMware plus, right? VMware plus the architecture. Um, but the product that we shipped was data storage. And so we had like the world's most badly named storage company <laughs> called scale computing, right? Which doesn't make any sense, but that, that's what it was for the first three years. And then as the market started to change, um, sometimes how we wanted, sometimes not how we wanted, but eventually, uh, it came around where the world was starting to, to, to open up to effectively a more direct competitor to VMware, and that's when we started to take the company that direction. And so today, I consider VMware to be my number one competitor. Now, not just VMware, but we do data storage. We do lots of different things, right? And um, Was it like a decade-long journey to get there? Yeah, 13 years. 13 years. Yeah, wow. 13 years. Oh, happy, um, happy birthday. Yeah, right. I, <laughs> you know, it's a 13-year-old startup, which is, uh, is crazy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, these, this is how it works, right? I mean, I love it, right? I mean, I hate it and I love it. It's a pain. But I, I always say if, if you're having fun 
60 to 70 percent of the time you're doing better than most people yeah. so go for it right absolutely um, it still works sometimes but uh well but, and how much capital have you raised it's, it's different than a SaaS company in terms of the capital needs oh no yeah because we ship hardware yeah right? so we've raised uh almost 100 million dollars wow um, over 13 years and right? can you give me an idea of the scale of scale at this point yeah i mean well um you Without know, giving I, away proprietary numbers. Right, I know. I got to be. I don't get my investors get you know will yell at me. But you know, <laughs> we are we are on track at least from a revenue standpoint that you know by this time next year we could be talking about an IPO. Awesome. Right. So you never know. A lot can happen in you know the macroeconomic conditions you can't control. Right. So it, it, it's you know it, it's. I'm gunning to be a company that's capable of going public. Whether or not we end up going public is sure. a different story. But um, sure. but that's you know. So we're you know that's we're great. A, Congratulations. We're, you know, we're we're approaching 200 employees. Um, so yeah, it's got it's a lot bigger than it was me and you know three guys at a table making phone calls right yeah. at one point. But um, well, and I, I want to give you a heads up. We did hit our time. Do you have another meeting, or can you go another five? No, no I'm, I'm I'm good. All right, yeah, cool, good. Yeah. awesome. Awesome, because yep. well, I, I certainly have more questions. Yeah, yeah, um, no. Because I mean, you, you're, yeah. you're at a scale now, a scale where you, you've seen a lot, you've mm -hmm. learned a lot, and it's, it's certainly not your first uh, technology startup. Yep. Um, but it, when you come into the office here, you can feel a certain vibe, and I, I feel like it's a very unique culture when you talk about uh, a, a tech startup, tech culture, and 13-year-old startup, you know, it's yeah, very yeah. different than... Uh, you know, 13-month-old startup or 13-week-old startup. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, again, I mean, I'm a startup guy, so yeah. I think, I, so Scott and I, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, and again, we've been together since we were 19 uh, at this <laughs> point. I mean, li literally, we've been, quote-unquote, married longer than I've actually been married. Um, the, uh, you know, so we've always done this, and, and I've, one thing I've learned over the years is, is that you can't, like as founders, you sort of set the tone um, of the culture, um, but that can't be done artificially, right? There's no like, oh, we're going to be this kind of company. Like if you're not actually that kind of person, or you're not whatever, we're not you're not willing to embrace those specific values, like deep down, it'll never stick. It's just it's just words on paper. It has to be point, authentic. Right? It has to be authentic, right? And so otherwise it's a ton of energy to try to be that person. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> and, and fake it. Yeah. And so we uh you know, so then if you know, for us, it's like, well, you start off hiring employees that like you want to work with because I'm expecting I'm gonna spend a lot of time with these people. Um and so and if you do that successfully and they see that and they start to do it well then as the company grows it's sort of building on that culture not with, with no one ever having written down this is the culture yep right in fact uh and that that's what well i come to that point in a second that, that, that's what you see at scale today right i mean my i don't even have an office right my desk sits in with everybody else. I, I i my desk is in the corner i give myself that privilege um <laughs> Mostly because my voice is so booming that it's, you know, I'm on everybody's phone calls one way or the other anyway. But, um, yeah, we're all out there. And, yeah, look, sometimes it's, it's the open floor plan concept. But, that again, not really intentionally. I mean, I never thought, well, we're going to do open floor plan. It was just like, well, it started off because it was me in a room. And then you added a few more people in a room. And then we just kept adding more desks in the room. And we're like, well, that works. So just, just keep doing that. It was, like, natural. Right? Yeah. I didn't even think twice about it. And we... Um, 
about almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, um, there was a, a group within Scale, and they wanted to prepare a, a presentation for our, our annual kind of all hands meeting, and it was around company culture. And uh, I didn't I didn't hear about this at first, um, and then I caught wind of it probably after I'd already spent a few cycles uh, worrying about it, and I thought to myself. Oh my lord! Like th this sounds like a train wreck to me. Like it, <laughs> like it's gonna be some cheese ball mission statement and all this this garbage, corporate garbage, is what I thought, right? Ironically, that it's like I'm, it's it's coming from the middle up, right? Not from like some top down, like go do this, right? Um, and so, uh, so I, I was just talking with Scott, and um, and Scott's a big believer in corporate culture, and he also was like, I could, I could feel the groan. Maybe he even actually groaned when I told him that I heard this was happening. He's like, well, I'm going to – he's like – I've learned over the years there's certain things. Like as a CEO, there's certain things like that it's harder to like get in and do because I'll say something and everyone just like blesses it like it's the, the Pope's holy truth, right? And it's not – even though I'm just kind of making it a comment, and so like I don't want to – like, if I go in there and say, well, I think the culture should be this, everyone's just going to be like, sir, yes, sir, and that's what it is. That's not what I want, right? So, so Scott's like, well, I'll get in there, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And, and he was just sort of observing, right? And, and his, the people who were putting this together didn't even know. His whole role was, was to hit the kill button. Like, if this thing is going to turn into corporate stupidity, just kill it off. Right? And corporate stupidity to you means... Something contrived, something contrived, yeah, contrived, fake. Like people are gonna see it, and it's just gonna feel like confetti and garbage. Yeah, yeah, like, and it's just like I don't want people wasting their time. I don't know. It just felt so unauthentic. Um, and so, and I'd been in, in companies. I've seen you know companies where this is like you know they, they they list like you know honesty and integrity is their two top cultural values, and the CEO is getting hauled off to prison for, like, you know, faking the books, right? Like, oh, okay, that didn't really happen. Um, and so went through this whole thing, and, and ended up doing a, a survey, and, and in the end, um, and on the side, Scott and I had written down, like, okay, well, what, you know, what are the things that, that we, you know, believe in here? Um, and, you know, there was things like fun and, uh, and innovation, right? I mean, it, you know, it was... Effectively, Jeff and Scott, thinking back of when we hire those first employees, what are we, we looking for? Right? And we're looking to do cool stuff with people we like, right? And to have fun doing it, right? And hopefully to, you know, make some money along the way, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's not rocket science, right? That's what yeah. we're trying to do. And, and effectively, right, it, that's what came out of the process, right? And it was, it was actually, it was fairly moving to me. Probably far more moving to me than it was to the other people within the company just because... <laughs> What, what, what came out of this whole process was, was what the culture actually was. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, like, it wasn't forced. It was just like, that is what the culture is, and that's what people voluntarily said the culture was. And, and to me, that, that, that's sort of proof that you don't need to do these kind of exercises, right? I mean, it was cool to see, but, you know, the culture is what the culture is. And, you know, you've got to embrace it and... You know, look, as the company's gotten bigger, different departments, there's slightly different versions of that culture within departments. I mean, sure. tech support and sales don't work the same way. Yeah. Um, there's, but there is a foundational element, right? And that's, uh, that's really important. And that's what keeps it exciting for me to come in here and, and, and do stuff. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that you, you um, before we started, you had uh, mentioned, like, soft skills yeah. right, as, as something. And I think, you know, if somebody's looking to get into a startup, um, you know there's a number of things that I think make for a great startup and do actually cause some challenges as the company gets bigger. But one of the things that, 
that really makes for a great startup team is, you know, what I call the, the propensity of everybody to jump on the grenade. Like a grenade rolls in the room and everybody jumps on it, right? Um, that's, that's what you're looking for, right? There's a problem, everyone's going to fix it, right? Yeah. And it's sort of the whole team. It's not anybody's job, right, to fix it. Because there's, there's a million things that have to get done in a, in a startup, and you got a half a dozen people to do it, right? So there is no, oh, well, that's not my job. That's this guy. There's none of that, right? Uh, now, so there's the, the, so there's the, um, the negative version of that, which is it's not my job, so I'm not doing it, right? The positive version is this person is, it is their job. They want to do it. And now if I stay back, I'm not in their way, right? So, right. And, and, it, and so as the company grows, it's a balance, right? I mean, you can't have a 200-person company where a tech support call comes in and everybody jumps on the call, right? right. And, and so, you know, that's where you get into the... Uh, you know, to, I'm going from a military analogy to a sports analogy, but the you know, okay, everybody do your job, right? Like, and by do your job, it means you trust that your teammates are going to do their job, and they will ask for help when they need it. it you're you're never it's it's not binary, right? You're not a hundred percent in either camp. Um, you have to be be willing to do both um, because you know people will see different things. That, that so that's one thing, right? Is is it just a willingness? almost a psychotic willingness to pick up anything you see and run with it. Yeah. Right. Um, as well as, you know, to kind of go back to my early point, a, a, a willingness to make the uncomfortable phone call to the prospect, to an existing customer, to whoever, and ask stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you learn so much. I mean, one conversation, I mean, that, that literally that one conversation with the guy from Fenwick and West changed the entire direction of where we would have headed. Um, a year of searching on Google for what we should do would have never unveiled that. In fact, it was basically the searching on Google that suggested we should just compete with VMware. Right. Right. Market share, market percentage, all that stuff. And nobody would have ever bought it. Right. Um, you know, it apparently was a good idea because now 13 years later, well, probably by that point, seven years later, people were buying it and yep. that's what we do now. But yep. it's it still, you had to get it took from time a to for B. the market to catch you had, up. Exactly. You had to get from A to B. And I think that's from a technology entrepreneurship standpoint, certainly has been in my track record is you tend to see where the market's going before the market gets there. And it's a real pain when you're there early. And it seems like we're always there early um, across <laughs> all my company. Even when we're like making decisions intentionally to try to not be there early, you end up being early. Um, but you're going to be cognizant of that, right? And, and asking some of these questions helps you, you know, kind of deal with that. But I always tell you, when you're writing a business plan, right? all of your business plan can be written by interviewing prospects, right? Because eventually that those conversations I had with Fenwick and West in data storage, and he said he'd spend 30% less, well then not, now I'm establishing the price, like what should we charge? Well, he just told me, right? Well, I told him 30% less, but then you start, well, what if it was 20% less? What if it was 50%, you know, you start figuring figure out, you out, figure what the, real out the price, price is. you figure out the roles of the people who make the buying decision, You'd ask the question, oh, when you do buy storage, who do you buy it from? Do you buy that direct from a, a, us, or do you go through a, a you know, CDW or one of these big vendors? And you start to figure all that out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when they say, oh, yeah, we use a particular reseller, um, well, who's that? Oh, it's this guy. You should call him. He'd be really interested in hearing about this, right? You just kind of, you know, you can build the whole thing. Um, and then, you know, if and not every company is, is suitable for, like, venture capital or raising money at all, but... When you do come to raise money, having been on both sides of these kind of pitches, made the pitch, pitches and heard pitches, mm-hmm. um, 
having those little anecdotes, like me going in and saying the reason that we're pricing it this way is because I talked to Fenwick and West, and they're the ones that told me to sell data storage. Like, that's worth infinite. Yeah, I mean, your credibility just went through the roof, right? It's Versus, a lot better than I went on Google and looked up Google oh, Trends. Oh, yeah, here's, you know, Gartner right. IDC research says blah, 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 blah. Right. right. And, you know, if you've been in, in the business, at least in tech, I assume other industries work the same way. I mean, all these analyst research reports are basically the amalgamation of the analysts talking to companies who are already in the space. Yes. And so, of course, those companies are going to feed them information that makes them look best, feel in the best position, you know, it may well all be 100% accurate, right? But they're not going to, you know, the data storage company is never going to say, well, you know, the market would really open up if somebody sold it for 30% less. Like, that's never <laughs> going to show up in an analyst report, right? So um, you have to get that stuff firsthand. And by the way, firsthand is free and, you know, takes way less. It feels like it's a lot of work, takes way less time. Um, and those little anecdotes uh, are just, I mean, that's the gold of, of how you sell a, a, an investment in an early stage company, right? What, what should other people know before working in a startup? Um, so I, I would say, so uh, let, me, let me answer that by first telling you what I tell entrepreneurs they should think about before they even start a startup, um, which is that you need to recognize that a, being an entrepreneur a startup entrepreneur is a lifestyle choice, not a career path. Um, there is no such thing as work-life balance. There is only one thing, which is your life, which also happens to be your work because it's you. Like you are the company, you are whatever. It's gonna, it's gonna touch everything. There's no tracking hours of work. You know, now th this is my perspective, right? I have seen guys that are pretty good at, 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 you know, okay, well I can take, they can take a vacation. I even now, I've been doing this for for 25 years. I. I find that I can go away from the office for four days, maybe five days, uh, and decompress. And by the end of that fifth day, I'm starting to get antsy because I want to know what's going on, right? Even though I don't want to be antsy, it's just like I, I you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a controlling guy. Like I'm not a micromanager in the least. Um, it's just like I, I feel like a responsibility to the customer. I just like want to know, like I need to keep things kind of, you know, know what's going on. And, and, you know, some guys don't do it that way, um, but, but I do. And so you have to know that. And early on, look, it's not going to be a lot of weekends. You know, I, I used to I remember when I was first starting scale and I at the time I was active on Facebook. and I'm not anymore, but I, I remember I would always sit down and like I would, you know, I'd work all day on scale and then I'd go home. I'd eat dinner with the family. I'd, uh, I, at the time I had little kids, I'd put the kids to bed and you know, about 8.15, I would log in I'd be, and I'd just get on Facebook and I'd say starting second shift and I would work from 8.15 to midnight or whatever and I'd, I'd get up the next day and do it all over again. Um, just how it is, right? And so that's the, it's the lifestyle, right? And if, 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 it's all, it all, if it all feels like work, no good. And if you're the kind of person that likes to compartmentalize, like this is my work life, my home life, my family life, I, I would just avoid it's just not for you right there's yeah. nothing there is 100% nothing wrong with leading your life that way like this would just be a bad choice right like, it'd be like you know oh I decide I'm going to become a professional surfer and I have bad balance like that's a bad idea right yeah. so um so that so then now to back to your question um right if you're if you're not the the founding team or the founding entrepreneurs you're not you're not necessarily taking on that same level of responsibility but on a spectrum of I'm punching it in from nine to five every day and going home versus I'm the, there is no work-life balance. 
you're going to be sliding toward the no work-life balance, right? The, yep. the jump on the grenade. The, the customer call comes in at 8 p.m. and uh, I'm sorry, everyone, I got to jump in and do this thing. And it, it, if if that feels too much like, again, like work or like something that's unnatural, maybe not for you, right? Yeah. Um, you know, because I, like I said, on one hand, one of my, my, my soft pieces of advice, soft skill advice is to say when the grenade rolls in the room, you know, go out of your way to jump on it, right? Yep. And again, you, you're probably not going to fake it, right? Not not more than a couple of times, right? Where it's like unnatural for me to jump on it. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Um, you know, I do think, though, that, you know, the if you're the kind of person, and, and a lot of people fall into this category, it's what draws a lot of people to, to earlier stage companies, which is they they can see the direct connection between their work and the outcome of the company or for the customers and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, that, that, that's going back to, that, that's what was no fun with the hedge fund, right? I mean, I could see their bank account changing, but that, <laughs> that was not that exciting, right? So, um, so people like that. Otherwise, you know, sometimes they, they work in big, you know, Fortune 500, and they say, I work on this stuff and nothing ever happens with it. I never see anything. My, you know, I wrote engineers. I wrote code three years ago. It hasn't made its way into the product yet. It's frustrating. That won't happen at a startup, right? I mean, a startup, if you're an, an unpaid intern during your sophomore year, your code is probably going into the product, right? right? Um, so that's really rewarding. The... Um, it all goes hand in hand, though, right? Your code going, like, so I'll use the engineering thing. Your code going into the product also means when the code breaks and the grenade rolls in the room, you got to jump right back on that thing, right? And that's got to be okay. Um, so, you know, there's an appealing aspect, which is, yes, I like the idea of my work being, I mean, who wouldn't? Right? I like my idea of my work being more connected. That comes with the territory, right? Yeah. Um, but th- that's... It, but that is what what it what it's like. There's also um, you can make a bigger impact, but also your actions or inactions have a bigger correct. impact. Yeah, impact exactly. Too. That's a good way to put it. Your actions and inactions have a bigger impact, and you're 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 shouldering a greater responsibility regardless of what your job title says or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Um, the upside of that too is, well, at least for a lot of early stage companies, is sharing in the upside as a co-owner. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that's, that's part of it. And, you know, we've taken the approach always at scale that, you know, everybody has some kind of stock options like mm-hmm. up and down the board. Um, and it, it's been very important. And you you're know, pretty ahead of the game with that here in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I started a couple of companies in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, that's like how it got structured. And I, I carried that over. Um, it's interesting. I've seen, you know, in more some recent trends, there's there's a bit less of that now happening even in Silicon Valley where they're sort of concentrating equity ownership only among kind of executives or, or so forth. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm either ahead of the game or old school, depending on, on your viewpoint, where <laughs> we still kind of spread it around. You know, again, it, to me, it's, it's it, to me, that's natural with this jump on the grenade kind of aspect. And I think that there's again, I, I would um Jumping on the grade can get in people's way. Like I said, as far as culture at scale computing goes, I, we lean more to the it's better to jump than not jump. Yep. Right. Try not to jump unnecessarily, but if you if no one else is jumping on that grenade, jump on it. Right? Yeah. And we'll 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 kind of you know work from there. So, um, so yeah. You know, and the other thing I think is probably obvious is that you know startups have a lot of emotional ups and downs, right? Um, and it, you know the, the obvious thing is, is money, right? So. You could join an unfunded startup or a newly funded startup, but I mean, look, a startup's always running out of money, right? In some way, way, shape, or form. So, um, you know, you might get lucky, right? Might might be something, but I mean, you look at something. I mean, 
you know, uh, I mean, Uber, the fastest growing company of all time, is still losing money, right? So, yeah. it, it, you know, not every business works that way, but, but that happens because you have that direct, you know, seeing your work being put to use also means you're going to see when, work, when your work didn't work and mm-hmm. other people's work didn't work or the sales guy didn't sell something because there's probably only one sales guy and it's probably also the CEO or whatever, right? I mean, you're going to see a lot of this stuff and that, that can be emotionally challenging, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of people think they want to know everything that's going on in a business they work for. Few of them probably really want to know everything that's going on, right? Because there's going to be, there's a lot more uncertainty than they probably would expect. Um, you know, you work at, at uh, I mean, looking out the window at Eli Lilly, I'm not throwing them under the bus. But <laughs> yeah. if you work at Eli Lilly, you probably don't have any real idea unless you're in the finance office at the high level, like, is Eli Lilly, you know, about to bust through some kind of debt covenant or something? Who knows? Yeah. Right? Um, you know, in a startup, you could be doing tech support in a five-person startup, and you're going to know, right? Yeah. Um, and and that that that's challenging. But then it's it's you know you, you also get to to live on that upside. So if if the you know if the upside if the the rush you get out of being on the upside outweighs the downside, right? Um, I think that helps. I, I think you know. Uh, it's funny. I you know. I, I consider myself a fairly emotionally stable guy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of even keeled. I think that that helps me. Um, you know, on the other hand, I've seen, you know, very, I mean, some notoriously very successful entrepreneurs are like wildly unstable emotionally. Right. <laughs> right. So, so I don't think that it's necessarily just that. Right. Um, but it, it, there is a, a That'll certainly have an effect on culture. I'm, I, oh, 100% it does, right? Yeah. 100% it does. I mean, yeah, we all at this point, you know, read all the stories about Steve Jobs. And, you know, sure. I know guys that worked at Apple. And, you know, I, I know one guy, I won't name him, but, you know, he was in a meeting. And the first thing uh, Steve did in the meeting was pulled a, uh, a coffee carafe, old school coffee maker, right? Where he had like the glass carafe. He like pulled the thing off and threw it at him in the meeting, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's not going to that. Well, I hope that God doesn't have it at scale, right? That is not my approach. Yeah. Um, obviously very successful with that right so it's it, it you know it can all work right and and again companies of wildly different cultures have success one thing i would say if, if you are looking at joining a startup um you know go in there and interview them and just i don't know if it's a small enough company just feel feel the vibe right and see if it if it fits interview the startup yeah, 100% interview yeah. a startup because you're going to be heavily invested in it. And yes, maybe your stock options become worth $100 million. That can happen, right? We know those stories. But, you know, the the odds are that won't happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, you want some upside. We all love to get some upside. But the odds are it won't happen. So put yourself in the mind. If it doesn't happen, was this still worth doing? Right. Right. I, I think that's the best way to look at it because um, – you know, if you're like, oh, well, but I love the, I love the product and the people and the, the culture, whatever that culture might be, right? Because not everyone fits in every culture. Whatever that is, if it's, again, if you're having fun 50, 60, 70% of the time, it's, it's not bad, right? So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's funny. Like, you, you see, um, you know, uh, one of the things when, when we're doing this, this could go back to the culture thing. So 
Um, Scott did a little bit of research on what other companies said about their cultures, right? Mm. Um, to compare, but mostly because we were again checking to see if this was all a bunch of BS or not. But um, you know, but he, he, very skeptical. Uh, yeah, yeah. Em- employer branders, exactly, right? And so, um, so Scott, he, one of the one, I, one of them I remember, uh, he had a few little bits, but for Uber, um, one of the stated cultural values was uh, they used the word fierce, right? And I, I'm like. Yeah, I guess so. Right. That, yeah. that actually shows up yeah. right? In, in compared to like, I don't know what Lyft said, but I mean, you know, now they, they, they I mean, at least back you know, before the CEO changed, like they kind of took on this persona of like bad guys, good guys. Right. And fierce was um, took on that you know, connotation was in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, the culture of Amazon versus the culture of Google, they're not the same. Google, sorry, is not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, they're both wildly successful both great places to work if it's the right fit for you i would be very skeptical that somebody would work at amazon and work at google and say they were a fit for both i don't think my understanding of those cultures is that they don't overlap all that much right Right. so um again nothing wrong with it but uh just interview that startup and and get a sense for you know talk to some people who work there um you know, you, you can learn a lot by talking to people who may used to, don't work there anymore um, with the grain of salt that maybe they got fired and, you know, whatever. But, you know, if, if, if you hear things that are interesting and appealing from people who don't work there anymore, that's a pretty good sign that's probably still it's probably what's going on in there. Yep. Right? So um, and there is all the other thing um, is uh, in, in my experience, uh, companies go through. A number of changes, like a, a, a company that is 10 people feels different than a company of 30 people. Um, and I, I picked those numbers specifically. There, there's a change that happens after 10, in my experience. There's another change that happens after about 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a 30-person company seems to ride out to around 100 or so. Yep. Um, and then it changes again, right? So if you... You know, if you come in and you like, I love this like eight-person company, and they show you the business plan that says it's going to grow. Now, now, growth is exciting, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but it is going to change. Yeah, right? and um, be ready for that. Be ready for that change, and you know, try to embrace the change. And if you find out it's not for you, well, there's plenty of other ten-person startups that need help, right? You Absolutely. can switch to them. And hey, if you find out later that you really liked the thirty-person to the hundred-person feel better, those are still early-stage companies favor those right they all do feel a little bit different so yeah that's that's good perspective i've definitely experienced that myself at, at various uh tech startups uh what do you most ex- last question for you uh before we break and I, I think we're gonna have to do a part two here because i know we're only <laughs> scratching the surface yeah um what are you most excited about at scale right now um or in tech in general well uh, yeah so at scale well my my view is going to be basically one and the same. There's other things in tech not related to scale I'm also excited about, but it's scale specifically. Um, so we now, we've evolved the business in 13 years in, in IT effectively. That's of multi-generations of stuff, right? Yeah. And so the, the business evolved into uh, what's now called edge computing, which you had mentioned earlier. And edge computing is a fancy way of saying um, anywhere I need to run applications outside of the data center, right? So, you know, so and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, group the cloud into the data center, right? So the, the, the joke all of us in the industry have is the cloud is just another word for somebody else's computer. <laughs> um, so it's still a, there's still a data center, stuff is running there. It's managed a little differently, right? But it's there. 
Um, the edge means it's outside of those. And when you think about a data center, a data center has, uh, whether it's a, a regional data center or the cloud, there are certain things that you can take for granted, right? Which is, oh, it's got redundant power and it's got good internet connectivity and it has people there to do stuff and it, it's got cooling and, you know, nobody starts a data center because they're trying to, uh, you know, save the environment with low utility bills, right? It's like the opposite of that. So you've got, you've got a certain framework to work in. When you start talking about, I'm going to run these applications outside of that environment. So as an example, um, we do a lot in retail, right? So you get uh, grocery stores, coffee shops, gas stations, um, et cetera, that now need to run applications locally, mm. um, for a number of reasons, right, um, which I can get to, but they're going to run those applications locally on stuff that's running locally. Well, guess what they don't have there? There's no IT administrator in the back of a McDonald's, right? The physical size of servers, which makes almost no difference in the data center, suddenly makes a tremendous difference, right? You can't put a rack of gear in the back of a coffee shop. Not going to work, right? the power consumption, the noise that it makes, the heat, all these things, these matter a lot. And so um, scale, so, you know, we play in all, all these markets, data center, cloud, some, uh, and edge. But where we're, we're very strongly positioned is that, um, as we kind of allude to along the way, some of, the, some of my background is in artificial intelligence uh, and machine intelligence. And so there's a foundational element of the scale product uh, built around machine intelligence which shows up as it's really easy to use. Mm -hmm. um, but but what, what's really happening is when, when things break, which they break in IT all the time, that's why you have IT people, yep. right? When things break, the system is designed to detect that and fix it by itself, uh, which is now, you know, it was really cool when we were selling into data centers, especially if it were a smaller company that may have had only three or five IT people, because that automation um, enhanced their I mean, it was like a sixth or seventh person, right? When you go out into the edge where there's no IT people, that automation is is the killer app, yeah. right? And so... Um, Can we get that installed in all of our mom's laptops? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so she might have to carry around like three laptops, but I could make it work. Um, so, yeah, it's funny you say, because I still do tech support for all my family. Like, you know, I do scale, but I'm also like the family tech support. So the... Um, you know, but, but Mom, being able to, moms and dads alike. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So being able to run those applications and know, right. So if it's the, if it's the application that's running the cash register at the grocery store, like, and the server goes down, like, then you can't take people's money. That's bad. Right. right? So, um, so some people say, well, what about the cloud? Well, what if the grocery store loses its connection to the internet? Right. We're not talking about a data center here. We're talking about a grocery store that probably has a Comcast cable modem connection to the internet it might lose that connection mm. you know and and then the other reason that this stuff runs locally it tends to be speed so you know the the joke we use in the industry is if you have a tesla or some other self-driving car and an animal runs out in front of you in the road you don't want the tesla asking google if it should stop right <laughs> that decision needs to be made locally and, and part of it's a matter of physics right that if you're if you're in new york and you're you're hitting a, a san francisco based data center at the speed of light that's going to take 50 to 100 milliseconds. I don't know what the exact number is, right? But it's in that range. If you're going 70, 80 miles an hour, you've gone 15 feet by the time that data packet comes too late, right? You yeah. need that decision to be made locally. And there's a lot of that, right? You're seeing cameras get deployed everywhere. Cameras generate a lot of data, which can easily saturate, right? I mean, putting a drop cam in your house is one thing, but if you're 
you know, I, I'm a, a factory and I put in a thousand cameras to look at all kinds of stuff in the factory, right? There's a lot of data there. You're trying to make decisions locally. And so that, so this big rise now of edge computing, it's, mm. it's effectively the next, you know, everyone now knows the cloud. This is the next thing, right? So you had, you know, you had mainframes, then you had uh, client server infrastructures, then you had data centers, the cloud, now you're getting edge computing. Right? And when you look at, what, what I'm real, most excited about as it relates to scale, is if you look at each of those different generations, the company that you think of, when I say mainframes, you think IBM, right? If you're a tech person, maybe if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you don't think <laughs> of anything, but if you're a tech person, you think IBM. Sure. That's because IBM wrote the software that made the mainframe work. They also built mainframes, but it was the IBM software that kind of made it all work. When you think client server architecture, if you're an IT person, you think Microsoft, yeah. right? So. That's how you know, Microsoft works. You start running Exchange servers in the back of your office and so forth. When you think data centers, you think VMware, right? And the opportunity for scale is when you think edge computing, you think scale computing, right? And so big upside to be effectively the operating system that, that runs everything. And that that's, you know, I did not predict when I, when I wrote down in that notebook, compete with VMware, I did not predict edge computing as a thing. Sure. Right? Um, that's evolved. It's, it's evolved and we've changed and, um, you know, and it's it's fortunate that we're in the place that we are, um, but it's not completely by happenstance, right? I mean, we were evolving and adjusting, and it happens to be like all of a sudden our product and the market like perfectly aligned, right? Um, but VMware was the previous generation of that software, and now we've, you know, here we sit with something that fits this next generation much, much better, and that, that's what I'm most excited about. And, you know, some of the other things I'm excited about in tech, you know, are are really in related areas. I mean, you know, the, um, you know, automation, robots, what do you, you know, the, the, you know, all this stuff, all this stuff effectively are, we're talking about the applications that do tie into the edge. Yeah, um, totally. Um, you know, I, I, I joke, some of the, we have a grocery store customer and they have um, some of their kind of uh, beta stores, if you will, do have robots that stock shelves and stuff. And That's I always cool. say, well, if the scale thing goes offline, the robots going to start killing people, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, go rogue, but. Um, you know, so so there's a lot of really cool stuff happening. Uh, you know, I think that um, you know, if, if I think about where we are today, I think that you know, drones and you know, robotic automation using cameras and and laser-based radar and that kind of thing. That that to me is where to that to me today is where I was with kind of that that Atari and that bulletin board system back in 1982. Right. Yep. I, I think we're at the very beginning of where all that stuff is. And, you know, and, and the, you know, the kids who are getting into that stuff now, um, you know, th they're the ones that are going to put old guys like me, like I'm yet to retire. Right. Because I'm like, wait, I'm too far, I'm too far separated. Just like I was yeah. an old mainframe guy. And all of a sudden these guys are showing up with this other stuff. Right. It's, um, you know, that, that I think is a really cool area. Um, you know, we'll see. So The world's going to be shaped uh, along the way. Uh, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thank you to Jeff Reedy for coming on the show today. Uh, be sure to check out Jeff and his company, Scale Computing, at scalecomputing.com. Uh, for links to Scale Computing and all the social profiles and all that good stuff, sounds like Jeff's not on Facebook anymore, but we'll get all the other ones on there. <laughs> uh, head on over to powderkeg.com. Check out the show notes. You can subscribe at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. And then finally, uh, to be among the first to hear about the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, continue to uh, subscribe, pay attention for the next episode. We would love a review, uh, and we'll catch you next time on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. <laughs> <laughs>